I thought I'd begin by letting you know that a few weeks ago I was walking with a, a very dear friend of mine by the river, and she was telling me some of the difficulties she's going through, but she was speaking of them quite cheerfully. And then she kind of showed me her necklace, and the necklace said, no mud, no lotus. <laughs> now, if you know a little bit about the symbology of the lotus, the lotus roots in the mud and it's nourished by the mud and it blossoms into this beauty that in Buddhism and in some of the other Asian religions uh, symbolizes the awakening of our heart and mind. And the understanding here is that sometimes one friend of mine describes it as manure for Bodhi, Bodhi being awakening, that, that, we, that we awaken not because we manage to sidestep the difficulties, but because of the quality of presence that we bring when the inevitable stuff of life appears. So tonight, this will be our exploration, no mud, no lotus. And, and I think that for most of us, we know that it's the times in our life, those seasons, when we really encounter something very, very difficult and it might be a um, major loss of some sort, a big relational conflict, something with our health, something very painful occurring for someone we love, that those are the times that require that we dig deeper into our reservoir of resources and spirit. We discover more of, of our strength and of our, of our depths. And for most of us, you know, there are times that we get caught in, in reactivity, but when we really let ourselves dive deep, we discover resilience. We discover a quality of soulfulness or of strength. And I love the way Pema Chodron describes this, this path. And she said, it's not like we're climbing up a mountain to get some pinnacle of light, but it's more invert the mountain. It's more that we're going down, down, down into the, the mud and the realness and the vulnerability, down and down until we find at the bottom and we're going together holding hands, this love that will not die. That when we root deep into the mud with presence, this awakens the heart of compassion. So it's quite appropriate, it feels, that on the solstice, the shortest day of the year, that it's the time that we know seasonally we can feel a, it can sometimes be bleak in the winter. It can sometimes seem like not much is happening. You know, they say that not every season of our life can be harvest, right? That we, we have winters in our life and that it's at those times there's a huge amount happening that's invisible to our maybe earthy eyes but if we we trust this awakening and we let ourselves encounter what's difficult we actually discover tremendous freedom so what we'd like to explore a little sometimes I do here is from an evolutionary perspective and it's quite interesting to me that it was really our vulnerability that gave rise to empathy and compassion. That in order to care for, uh, for our offspring, 
who, were, who came onto this planet really neat, very helpless. Um, that first the females developed this capacity for attunement, for being able to emotionally read and resonate and respond with care. That the centers of the brain that are responsible for compassion and empathy were a response to the perceived helplessness of our offspring. And then it generalized to men, so men and women have the same equipment. But here's an an interesting piece I'll I'll read you. One day I was walking through the Stanford University campus with a friend, writes friend Peavy, who's an activist. She says, I saw a crowd of people with cameras and video equipment on a little hillside. They were clustered around a pair of chimpanzees. The male was running loose, the female on a chain about 25 feet long. Turned out the male was marine world, the female was being studied, and the spectators were trying to get them to mate. Now the male was eager. He grunted and grabbed the female's chain and tugged. She whimpered and backed away. He pulled again. She pulled back. And watching the faces of these chimps, I, a woman, Fran writes, began to feel sympathy for the female. Suddenly, the female chimp yanked her chain out of the male's grasp. To my amazement, she walked through the crowd, straight over to me, and took my hand. Then she led me across the circle to the only other two women in the crowd, and she joined hands with one of them. The three of us stood together in a circle. I remember the feeling of that rough palm against mine. The little chimp had recognized us and reached out across all the years of evolution to form her own support group. So there's this understanding that, that mammals, more and more, that mammals have this wiring for, for empathy, and it's gaining ground. And, and a study I read last week that I found helped me understand something fresh. This was a study of rats, and it showed that rats, when they're put in a, in a kind of a large cage together, if one of the rats is in a smaller enclosure and trapped in there, and then that rat gives a distressed call, the other rat that's more freed up will come over and open, learn to open the small enclosure and free its fellow rat. And these rats already knew each other from past lifetime or past cage or something. (laughs) Now here's another piece of it, that if the freed up rat was given a hoard of chocolate chips, it would save one, save a treat for the captive rat until it was free. I think that's really interesting. That that's part of the way these rats are designed. Now, here's another interesting piece. That the male rats were not as effective in freeing the trapped rat as the females. And what they found is that that both sexes of rats have empathy they both sense and want to respond to vulnerability, okay? But the females have better control over their own stress reaction. So, in other words, they can down-regulate strong emotion and respond in a difficult situation to the trapped rat. So they're better able to open up the cage. And to me, what is fascinating about that is what it says about how we, in difficult times, when the reactivity of stress takes over, 
In other words, when, when our fears or our shame or our anger takes over, then we lose contact with our capacity to respond from empathy and compassion. So that it becomes critical that instead of responding in a healing way, when, when we get stressed out, we get stuck in the mud. We encounter the difficulties, but if we don't know how to work with stress, rather than responding from our heart, we get stuck in the mud. We get identified. We get reactive. We get angry. This is Maya Angelou. She says, I've learned that you can tell a lot about a person by the way he or she handles these three things. A rainy day, lost luggage, and tangled Christmas tree lights. (laughs) I like that. So this is is one level of the stressors. How do we respond? Is it mud that we just open to and, and blossom out of, or is it, do we get stuck? One writer said that a sign of enlightenment is whether when we have to get a, take a detour, we can still enjoy the scenery. So, what we find is that we all have very strong conditioning when we encounter the mud, the seasons that are difficult, to react, to, to get stressed, and to get caught up. We all have that conditioning in us, and to assume that something's wrong. So the first thing is it's useful to sense, well, how do, how do we do that? Where do we get caught? So we end up, rather than down-regulating the stress reaction and coming from our heart, what's our patterning? And one of the main ways that we get stuck, as we know, is when something goes wrong, we think this is bad, and we look for something to blame, and often we'll blame others. So if we find ourselves blaming others, those are moments when we're not having access to the parts of our brain, our heart, and our spirit that really have this capacity for compassion. Some of you might remember this. A devoted wife had spent her lifetime taking care of her husband. Now he had been slipping in and out of coma for several months, yet she stayed by his bedside every single day. When he came to a sense of emotion for her to come near to him, She sat by him. He said, you know what? You've been with me all through the hard times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you gave me support. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. You know what? What, dear, she asked gently. I think you bring me bad luck. So that's one reaction to stress. Now, the other, as many of you know, when we get stressed out, we start moving faster. And again, that disconnects us from our apparatus for compassion. And excuse the dry terminology, but again, when we speed up, when we move faster, when we race around, when we get busy, um, we're unable to contact the tenderness of our hearts. There's a, a saying that even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat, you know, unless you're one of the real compassionate rats. (laughs) So that's another way that we leave this innate capacity to respond with heart and to have the mud become really this part of awakening. 
Another to mention is addictive behavior, because so many of us will go to what, what numbs us, what soothes us, rather than learning to stay. We don't learn to stay. We turn to food. We turn to our email, to online surfing. You know, there's only two industries that call their clients users. <laughs> Computers and drugs, right? Right? Okay. I think that's interesting. A friend of mine handed me this about eight months ago. A man goes into a bar and orders a drink. Bartender gives it to him and he pushes it off to the side. He orders another drink. The bartender serves it to him. This time he drinks it. What gives? The bartender asks. Well, I go to AA meetings and I hear it regularly. It's the first drink that leads to trouble. (laughs) So we have our addictive behaviors and then we have this mind that rationalizes and justifies and keeps us in the very strategies that actually keep us from our heart. The most common of all the strategies that really keep us disconnected is what I often call the second arrow. The first arrow is things are tough. The second arrow, it's my fault. I'm bad. Something's wrong with me. You know, I'm failing. I'll never get it right. I'm the one that's different. I'm the one that's really, really not a good person. That kind of thing. So I'm bringing these up because What the critical piece in all this is when things get difficult, when we have a season that is um, what I'm calling mud, the vulnerability, the fear, the loss, how do we relate? And, And even if we relate immediately with maybe blaming or whatever, how much of a lag time is there until we go, oh, yeah, This isn't really a detour. This is the path itself. This sickness is not like I'm waiting to get over it so then I can live my life. Or this divorce, this this hurt. This sense of of insecurity about finances. It's not like I've got to figure this out or I've got to in some way get through this so then I can um, enjoy things. It's right now what's happening. And it is the mud that serves awakening. If our attitude, if our way of relating is mindful. So let me ask you to reflect, as I often do, just to check in for yourself. And as you pause right now, the sense that you're, you're coming home to your breath, to presence. And let come into your awareness anything that might be going on in your life right now that you might consider as uh, something difficult or challenging, something that, that might bring up a sense of insecurity or hurt, anger. Might be something in a relationship. Might have to do with your health or the well-being of someone you care about. Now just scan and sense, how have I been relating to this? 
have I been thinking of this as this is a bad thing that's happening? This is a detour? That something's wrong with life or with me or with somebody else? That it shouldn't be like this? Notice if you have been feeling either victimized or offended by what's happening, burdened. And just sense if it's possible to regard whatever this difficulty is, not as a detour, but this is the path that this is exactly the mud that serves and nourishes your freedom, should you pay attention. A way to, a way to explore that is to just sense that longing in you, may this difficulty serve to awaken compassion and wisdom. This is the traditional bodhisattva aspiration. Bodhisattva is an awakening being. May this difficulty serve to awaken compassion and wisdom. And the more sincere you feel you you holding that, that prayer, the more you really write this moment, this isn't just like a little exercise you're going through mechanically, but the more your heart says, yes, really, may this difficulty help to wake up this heart. The more actually you have aligned yourself in a way that makes that possible. Imagine how this might serve awakening. Barbara Kingsolver writes, here's what I've decided. The very least you can do in your life is figure out what you most hope for. The most you can do is live inside that hope, not admire it from a distance, but live right in it, under its roof. What I want is so simple I almost can't say it. Elementary kindness. Okay, so open your eyes. Come on back. Okay. So now we bring this inquiry right to the heart of things, which is, so what allows us to call on our hearts rather than get caught in that reactivity where we get stuck in the mud? And we come to this training in mindfulness, in meditation, There's been a lot of research on compassion in recent years. A wonderful compassion lab out in Stanford, and there there are many places. And a lot of the articles written have mindfulness as the context for compassion, that when we can bring a real presence to what's happening, it's the alchemy of that presence that actually unfolds compassion. And if I had to say it differently, it's when you 
actually have the mindfulness to contact the mud, the vulnerability, the fear, the clench in the heart, the feeling of the heart beating, the shame, the hurt. When you let your attention root into the mud and are able to at the same time in some way wish yourself or another well, then that wakes up the parts of the brain that are really filled with empathy and compassion. So we go into the mud and we look towards the light simultaneously. And we'll talk about this a little more in a moment. When we begin with compassion, it's said that the very heart of Buddhism is compassion. The heart of compassion is really for ourselves. If we don't have this capacity to stay with what's difficult in our own body and heart, then our compassion for others will be abstract. It'll be uh, one step removed. Compassion has to be embodied. Hence the mud. Hence we have to be able to contact the, the difficulty, the unpleasantness of it. And yet, if all we're doing is fixating on the unpleasantness, that's what I call being stuck in the mud, identified. So a mindful presence both contacts what's here, but also senses a larger space. It has the wisdom to sense the space things are happening in. It's allowing. In the moment that you contact the mud, but there's this allowing quality, you'll find the space that actually lets there be a kind of a light of compassion spring forth. And we'll explore this together um, as a closing meditation. But just to say that when we've been able to do that for ourselves, when we can be in touch with what's difficult in ourselves and open in that way, when we see another struggling, we are immediately and spontaneously responsive. Our heart cares. Story for you. One day when I was a freshman in high school, I saw a kid from my class walking home from school. His name was Kyle. He looked like he was carrying all of his books. I thought to myself, why would anyone bring home all his books on a Friday? He must really be a nerd. I had quite a weekend planned parties in a football game with my friends, so I shrugged my shoulders and went on. But as I was walking, I saw a bunch of kids running towards him. They ran at him, knocking all his books out of his arms and tripping him, so he landed in the dirt. His glasses went flying, and I saw them land in the grass about 10 feet from him. He looked up, and I saw this terrible sadness in his eyes. My heart went out to him. So I jogged over to him, and as he crawled around looking for his glasses, I saw a tear in his eye, and I handed his glasses to him. I said, those guys are jerks. They really should get lives. He looked at me and said, hey, thanks. There was a big smile on his face. It was one of those smiles that showed real gratitude. I helped him pick up his books and asked him where he lived. turned out he lived near me, so I asked him why I'd never seen him before. He'd gone to private school. So I smacked him on the back and said, hey, big guy, you'll be great. He looked at me with one of those looks, a real grateful one, and said, thanks. We talked all the way home. I carried some of his books. It turned out he was a pretty cool kid. I asked him if he wanted to play a little football with my friends. He said yes. We hung out all weekend, and the more I got to know Kyle, the more I liked him, and my friends thought the same of him. Monday morning came, and there was Kyle with a huge stack of books again. I stopped him and said, boy, you're going to really build some muscles with this pile of books every day, and he just laughed, handed me half the books. 
Over the next four years, Kyle and I became best friends. When we were seniors, we began to think about college. He decided on Georgetown and I was going to Duke. I knew we'd probably always be friends and the miles would never be a problem. He was going to be a doctor. I was going for business on a football scholarship. Kyle was valedictorian of our class. I teased him all the time about being a nerd. He had to prepare a speech for graduation. I was so glad it wasn't me having to get up there and speak. Graduation day, I saw Kyle. He looked great. He was one of those guys that really found himself during high school. He filled out and actually looked good in glasses. He had more dates than I had, and all the girls loved him. Boy, sometimes I was jealous, and today was one of those days. I could see he was nervous about his speech, so I, so I told him, don't worry, you'll be great, and he gave me that smile again. Thanks, and he began his speech. He cleared his throat and began saying, Graduation is a time to thank those who helped you make it through those tough years. Your parents, your teachers, your siblings, maybe a coach, but mostly your friends. I'm here to tell you all today that being a friend to someone is the best gift you can give them. I'm going to tell you a story. I just looked at my friend with disbelief as he told the story of the first day we met. He had planned to kill himself over the weekend. He talked of how he had cleaned out his locker so his mom wouldn't have to do it later and was carrying his stuff home. He looked hard at me and gave me that little smile. Thankfully, I was saved. My friend saved me from doing the unspeakable. I heard the gasp go through the crowd as this handsome, popular boy told us all about his weakest moment. I saw his mom and dad looking at me and smiling that same smile. Not until that moment did I realize its depth. Never underestimate the power of your actions. With one small gesture, you can change a person's life for better or for worse. We're in each other's lives to impact each other. Look for the goodness, the vulnerability in others. Your lives are inextricably bound. We do underestimate the effect we have on each other. We are entirely interdependent. This idea that we're supposed to be independent. Our very waking up is a waking up to realize non-separation. To realize who we are beyond these changing forms. To realize that timeless presence and that awake heart that really is our shared source. And what happens is that when we forget we get caught in fear. And when we're in fear, we end up not seeing who others are. We can't reach out. Now I want to share very briefly another story that a friend of mine passed on to me. It's a video that you can see on YouTube. This is a young boy, Jonah Maori. And Jonah in middle school, Jonah was gay. He was pretty much tormented by the homophobic and cruelty that's in our society and certainly among kids that age. And so the mud that he had a contact with was the incredible pain and shame and despair he was feeling. And what he did was rather than do himself in, that tragically has happened to so many young gay people, Rather than disconnecting or getting addicted or getting, getting into um, blame and rage, he did this video where he named the depth of the pain he was feeling. And this video went viral. And why did it go viral? This is a human 
in a very evolved way, naming the truth of the vulnerability, and from a place of a very, very large and wise heart, naming it in a way that other people became safe for them to feel their belonging to. The amount of compassion that it, that it brought, the wave of it, that came towards him and then towards others in similar situation is why that went viral. It is part of our evolutionary equipment to learn to relate to what's difficult in a way that can free our hearts, not keep us stuck in the mud. That's our capacity. Every one of us has that capacity. Every one of us. And I've seen people go for years and years and feel like, well, I'm just never destined to be the one that actually gets freed up through the hard times. And then a slight shift in perspective of getting that this is actually perfectly the thing that I need to stay and feel. This can free this heart. Actually ends up unfolding us. When we stay with our own pain and start waking up, we see past the mask in each other. We see, just as uh, this boy did with Kyle, we see who's there. And we see it more and more quickly. It's as Naomi Nye says, Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. So this is really, to me, the hope of evolution and the hope for peace and and harmony and social justice on earth that we have the courage and the mindfulness to be present with the difficulties we encounter, that we can contact what's true and then reach out across species to other creatures because we get into this idea that we humans are different. We are of the earth. We are the earth. To reach out to this earth, to reach out to those with different sexual orientation or different race or different politics, whatever it is, and discover the vulnerability and the goodness that dwells in each person. Discover that the light of the star shines through us. You know, there's a Serbian saying that goes like this. It says, be humble for you're made of earth. Be noble, you come from the stars. So we'll take a few moments to um, explore this no mud, no lotus in our last little sitting. Perhaps the most well-known mantra in the Buddhist tradition, Om Mani Padme Hum. The meaning is literally the jewel is in the lotus. And the understanding is that as we awaken, as we awaken, we discover the jewel of compassion. Our awakening comes from this dedication 
to being here with the life that's right here. So in this practice, this very simple heart practice, I'd like to invite you to bring to mind someone that at this time in our history, this time in their life, this solstice time is having a hard time, someone who's having difficulty. might sense your your wish for this person that whatever the mud is that they're encountering, the difficulty, that it really serve his or her awakening, his or her wisdom, happiness, peace. You might ask yourself, what is it like to be this person? So that it's not abstract, as if you could be inside this person's body and heart and eyes and look through the world and see, what's it like? What's this person believing and feeling? In the most deep way, ask yourself, what does this person need? What does this person need to experience? Is it to trust his or her goodness? Is it to feel loved, feel understood? Sense that energetically, whatever's needed that you could offer with your heart and your prayer. You might whisper mentally a a message of love as if you could, your words and perhaps imagine your hand on that person's cheek or around their shoulders, communicating in a very direct way your care. And to sense all those that are suffering in the same way, that your heart really is holding all those that suffer, including your own being. And we'll we'll close this meditation with this chant, Om Mani Padme Hum. And again, I'll say the word slowly, Om Mani Padme Hum. Once again, Om Mani Padme Hum. So what we'll do is we'll just start chanting it slowly together. And then as before, if you want to to change the pitch to harmonize, please feel free and we'll stop when you hear the gong. Um, So first just listen for one round and then join in. Om Mani Padme Hum Oh.
Namaste. So I'd like to introduce you to the next part of our program and gathering. We have a new sensation in the Dharma world. It's called Dharma Rock. (laughs) And we have a new sensation of a performer for Dharma Rock who's going to be coming up here in a moment. We're ready for you, La Sarmiento. So when the Buddha got enlightened, he actually was pretty skeptical about uh, the ability of human beings to wake up. You know, he thought like, ah, this is going to be really hard. And I oftentimes like imagine him like looking out of his little hut or wherever he lived and thinking, never mind. (laughs) Uh, There was just really no hope. So I just want to acknowledge how uh, courageous, how brave all of you are to be on this path to wake up because it's not easy. And this song will describe that. So due to the recession, um, I didn't have any money or um, for some backup doo-wop people. So I'm going to kind of do this on my own. So. <laughs> so the Pali word for suffering is dukkha. And you'll find that happening in this song as well. So. Dukkha, dukkha, down, doobie, do down, down. Dukkha, dukkha, down, doobie, do down, down. Duka duka down doobie do down down. Waking up is hard to do. Don't take my pain away from me. <laughs> Let me live my life in misery. Cause if it goes, then I'll be blue. Cause waking up is hard to do. I love it when my mind is tight. And it keeps me up through the night. Come on, Buddha, it's just you. Cause waking up is hard to do. They say that waking up is hard to do. Why just one arrow when there can be two? Don't say my suffering can end. Instead of waking up, I want to be a couch potato again. I beg of you, just let me cry. Wise effort, I don't want to try. Come on, Buddha, get a clue, cause waking up is hard to do. Doobie do down down. Duka duka down, doobie do down down. Duka duka down, doobie do down down. Waking up is hard to do. I'm Leo, born in the year of the dragon. You really don't want to do that. So, <laughs> so um, this next song is, is about the holidays and about the equanimity that we all need to practice during the holidays, right? Being with family and, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, in honor of the fourth Brahma Vihara, this song comes from uh, my dear Dharma buddy Maureen Brady, who is uh, from the Snow uh, Flower Sangha in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Well, the holidays can be frightful, but the Dharma is so delightful. Since there's no escaping, ho, ho, ho. Let it go, let it go, let it go. With the family, there is no stopping. I'd rather die than keep on shopping. Don't these people know that I'm po? Let it go, let it go, let it go. 2 a.m. and still no good nights. Oh, I might throw them out in the storm. But the Buddha says, do not bite. All your life long, do no harm. In hell we will not be frying. My dears, we're Buddhists, there's no dying. <laughs> Don't let the holidays get you low. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Thank you. You're very generous. <laughs> really so this last song is basically one I've sung for the last couple of years, but uh, to me it summarizes the whole Dharma in four verses. So um, have you ever wondered what Johnny Cash would have been like as a Dharma teacher? Well, wonder no more. Namaste, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear those thoughts coming, coming around the bend. I ain't felt such suffering since I don't know when. And I'm stuck in my mind's prison. And I just can't get free. But those thoughts keep coming. And that's what tortures me. <laughs> so here we are in Sangha for some refuge and relief. From our crazy, busy lives and the boss that gives us grief as we watch our minds wander, thoughts go into and fro. Amazing what can happen when we can finally let go. <laughs> the practice makes you stronger, at least that's what she says. Build you up some courage to learn how to stay. And I trust that with more practice of love and compassion, that an open heart, regardless, can actually be fun. <laughs> so may you all be happy. May you all know peace. Be free from suffering, the ultimate release. And may the merit of your practice wake up all beings now. As all things are impermanent, I end with a heartfelt bow. You guys are really doing well with the singing, so we're going to have you participate now. And this is a kind of semi-round kind of thing, um, and it's based on, La mentioned the Brahma Viharas, and these are the qualities of the heart. So the mantra is Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Now I'm going to have you say it first. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. 
It means metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita is joy, and upeka is equanimity. It's that space that allows them all to arise. So I'm going to begin with everyone that's on this side to chant. Oh, no, actually, we'll have you guys begin, and then I'll come in. Yeah. They're going to begin. Okay, here's how we'll do it. (laughs) We're going to all sing it at once. And then you guys watch me because I'm going to have you come in at a certain point with the same chant, but but at a different at a different juncture. So we get some uh, harmony. Okay, you'll understand. (laughs) We're ready. All right. So. Meta Karuna Mudita Upeka. 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 We have uh, come to the time where we're going to be doing a a candlelit ceremony. And what we'll need to do for this ceremony is first have a few people that have, I think, already agreed to come up and help out come up front here. As many of you know, the the symbol of the solstice is both the the shortest day and also this light that is really spirit light. And the the purity of, of light comes from the fact that it really is continuous. It dwells within each of us. We wake it up in each other. We pass it on. It's something that's timeless and has a radiance. Thank you. And so the way we're going to be doing this is um, we're going to have a couple of folks light the candles, and then every, everyone in here is going to get it from passing it and receiving it. So this is our chance to really feel community, the community of light that is possible. So what we'll be doing is um, chanting back to Om Mani Padme Hum and um, chanting it together, and we're going to have the lights dim. But first we'll have the, um, in the silence, first we'll have the uh, two of you get the light from in front of the Buddha. And then if we can, dimming the lights. 
And just to, for a moment, just close your eyes and feel the presence and the warmth that's here. Feel your own heart. Omane Padme Hum, this blessing of compassion that shines through, this light that shines through each being. May it be awakened. We'll begin chanting together. Om Mani Padme Hum. I invite you to stand up. Mani Padme In the silence, you might want to take a look around. Just look around and see the lights, each seeming in some way separate and yet part of the same continuous, luminous inner radiance that shines through all. And then in the silence, for just these few moments, sensing your prayer. Sense your prayer for the life and the light that's within your own being. Whatever your wish is on this solstice eve, sensing your prayer for all those that have gathered. We sense this boundless heart 
this edgeless heart that includes all beings, all life everywhere. And we offer our prayer that all beings everywhere may touch the beauty and freedom of loving presence, might know loving presence as their deepest capacity and essence, that all beings everywhere might touch a great and natural peace, that there be peace on earth. May there be peace on earth. May there be peace on earth and peace everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, our IMCW site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.